Welcome to the Certified OCS Prep Podcast. I'm Alexis. And I'm Amanda. And we're here to help you prepare for your OCS test. Okay, so today we are going to talk about the clinical practice guideline for shoulder pain and mobility deficits. So this is really focused on adhesive capsulitis or frozen shoulder. Um, So we just want to reiterate that we're going to chat through these practice guidelines on here, but it's really important that you read them. Um, There's a lot of details. They can be a little lengthy depending on which one you're looking at. Uh, This one isn't necessarily too bad, but it's really important to read them and understand the different levels of evidence. Um, So just listening to this isn't quite sufficient, but hopefully it will help you in your studies. Um, So the first thing I want to talk about is just the prevalence, and I'm going to kind of go through this in the order that they talk about it in the practice guidelines, so hopefully that'll be a little easier if you've already read it and are familiar with it. So the first thing to look at is prevalence, so primary adhesive capsulitis versus secondary adhesive capsulitis. So um, primary adhesive capsulitis is idiopathic. It's not associated with any sort of systemic condition or a history of injury. Um, it affects 2% to 5.3% of the general population. So you're going to see this most commonly between the ages of 40 and 65, and it's going to be in women more than it is in men. Uh, Having frozen shoulder in one shoulder places you at risk to have it in the opposite shoulder, uh, 5% to 34% prevalence on that. And it can occur up to 14% of the time simultaneously. So I know I personally haven't seen anybody with both shoulders at the same time, but I've definitely seen quite a few patients who've had one shoulder and then, you know, years later or whatever, they have the other one. I don't know what your experience is with that, Amanda. I would agree. I, I think most of the time someone will say to me like, oh, I had something almost exactly like this 10 years ago. Typically, though, in my experience, they'll report years difference between the two. Mm-hmm. Yeah, me too. Between anywhere from two to 10, I would say somewhere in that neighborhood. Yeah, definitely. Um, so then secondary adhesive capsulitis. So these are people that are getting this um, and they've had other sort of reasons possibly or contributing factors. So this affects 4.3% to 38% of the population um, that's affected by diabetes, type one or two, or thyroid disease. Um, so that's that's really the, the most common, I think. So if you look at the three subcategories, the first one systemic. So again, diabetes or thyroid disease. And again, I've seen people with both type 1 and type 2 diabetes with frozen shoulder. I don't know if you've seen that as well. Um, I would agree. I, yeah. I don't know that it's really strongly identified in the literature either. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think you'll see it with both. Yeah. Um, then the second subcategory is extrinsic factors. So stroke, heart attack, COPD, chronic liver disease, um, cervical disc disease, or a distal extremity fracture. So some sort of other thing that's happened. um, And then the person ends up developing frozen shoulder because of that. Um, And the third is intrinsic factors. So rotator cuff or biceps tendinopathy, calcific tendinitis, um, AC or glenohumeral joint arthropathy or proximal humeral or scapular fracture. So anything sort of inside that specific shoulder joint that might also lead to frozen shoulder. Um, So talking about the pathoanatomical features that you'll often see. Um, There's synovial inflammation, 
And the big one and the thing that you're going to hear us kind of repeat a lot throughout this is the loss of both active and passive range of motion. So you really want to make sure you're looking at the passive range of motion on these individuals to confirm that it is adhesive capsulitis. Uh, you'll see external rotation most limited with the arm at the side and in various degrees of shoulder abduction. So they say the hallmark sign is limited, limited passive external rotation of 50% or less than 30 degrees with the arm at the side. Um, they also talk about the capsular pattern, which is uh, external rotation being more limited than abduction, abduction more limited than internal rotation. But this is definitely not always seen, and they do note that. Um, I know Amanda and I have talked about this a little bit. I think people are very guarded into internal rotation. I don't know that, um, you know, you're always going to see that abduction is more limited than internal. But the external rotation is, is something to look at. So talking about the clinical course, um, so there's four stages that they talk about of adhesive capsulitis. Uh, the first is the pre-adhesive phase. So uh, this can last up to three months. The things you're going to see during this phase are sharp pain at end ranges of motion with achy pain at rest. These individuals are going to have a lot of sleep disturbances. Um, arthroscopic examination is going to show diffuse synovial reaction without adhesions or contracture. So basically there's going to be some inflammation starting. This is often misdiagnosed as impingement and the early loss of external rotation with an intact rotator cuff is the hallmark sign during this phase. So I don't know, Amanda, do you have any comments on that phase? Pretty straightforward. Um, it's pretty straightforward. I'd say the one thing that might tip you off. And again, this isn't an always type of situation, but really paying attention to the mechanism of injury um, if someone comes in, you're thinking rotator cuff, they probably have a little bit more specific on-siting event as opposed to adhesive cap is usually pretty insidious. Mm -hmm. Not that rotator cuff can't be, but sometimes, you know, your rotator cuffs will say, oh, I did a lot of yard work last weekend, or, you know, I was helping somebody move, or I was doing, you know, a remodel in my house. They're going to have a little bit more, it may not have been a specific event, but there'll be like a few days worth of something that generally will start their symptoms versus an adhesive cap. They're going to really truly say, I have no idea. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And then, you know, you can obviously always look at those other comorbidities too. Obviously if there's somebody who they come in and they have diabetes or thyroid issues, then that's going to key you in a little bit too. All right. So moving on to stage two. So this is the freezing or painful stage. So in this stage, they're going to see gradual loss of motion in all directions due to pain. And this can last from months three to nine. Um, and so the examination would show aggressive synovitis and some loss of motion. So this is where they're really starting to lose that passive range of motion. Um, and then going into stage three, that's the frozen stage. So you're still gonna see that pain and loss of motion. And this lasts from nine to 15 months after the onset of their symptoms. Um, so the synovitis is decreasing a little bit in this phase, but progressive capsular ligamentous fibrosis results in loss of the um, axillary fold and range of motion when tested under anesthesia. So both of these stages, you're really looking at that pain, loss of motion. It's really kind of what's going on in the joint, I guess, that differentiates them. Um, but 
you know, this is a long time for these folks. I mean, we're at 15 months, you know, once we're getting towards the end of stage three. So do you have any comments on those two stages? No, Amanda? I would say though, from my experience, that's where your those are the stages where your cortisone injections are going to be the most helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes I've had patients within those 15 months have more than one to try to get them yeah. through that time. Because like Alexa said, that's a long time. I mean, you talk about over somebody's life, a year and a half, that can be, that can be substantial. For sure. Yeah. So stage four is your thawing stage. Um, this is where the pain begins to resolve, but they still have a lot of stiffness in that joint. Um, and this can last from month 15 to 24. And um, yeah, so you're going to see that capsular ligamentous complex fibrosis and continued uh, receding synovial involvement in this phase. So this is where they're kind of getting towards the end, um, but they're still going to have a lot of stiffness, but that pain should be better by then. Anything else on that stage, Amanda? No, I think that's, that's pretty true. It just, they, they're much happier in that phase. (laughs) Yeah. The pain is gone. So they're happy about that. Um, So, yeah. So, you know, this is, was initially considered a 12 to 18 month self-limited process uh, with mild symptoms that may persist for years, depending on the extent of the fibroblasts and subsequent resorption. And, you know, patients who have diabetes often have consider too. Um, and then, you know, continuum of pathology is characterized by a stage progression of pain and mobility deficits that at 12 to 18 months, mild to moderate mobility deficits and pain may persist, though patients may report minimal to no disability. So that's kind of what we were talking about. Once that pain goes away, they feel a lot better and they feel like they can do a lot more. So even if that motion is still limited, they're going to feel so much better. Um, I'd say one thing I would kind of add on that note there is the patients are not going to, the patients perceive less pain. They're not going to realize like end range, range of motion limitations that persist. They're not going to realize some strength deficits side to side. So one thing I would caution you as the therapist in this situation is not to discharge these folks too early, maybe move them to a more infrequent follow-up, you know, once every few weeks, once a month. But sometimes these people are discharged quickly and they run a risk if they don't restore normal mechanics to that joint, they -hmm. run the risk of becoming your tendinopathies in a year. Mm -hmm. So just making sure that you're really not skipping stage four or cutting stage four short, you know, even though the patient is going to report to you that they feel a lot better and they're doing almost everything, it doesn't mean that mechanically they're back where they need to be to be doing the type of recreational or heavy work they want to be doing. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Um, so then the next section they talk about is diagnosis and classification. So um, recognizing that these patients present with a gradual and progressive onset of pain and loss of active and passive range of motion in both elevation and rotation. So again, here we are talking about the gradual loss of both active and passive range of motion. Um, and then we get a little bit into differential diagnosis. So um you know, obviously you want to consider that if things aren't exactly lining up with the stuff we've talked about, if they're, you know, their active range of motion is pretty limited, they're having pain, they're not sleeping well, but their passive range is normal. It's probably not adhesive capsulitis. So you're wanting to look at something else. Um, and you want to make sure that your, you know, interventions are going to be aimed at normalizing their specific impairments. Um, so in the clinical practice guidelines, 
there are some decision-making trees. So on this one, it's page um, 10 and 11. So you can kind of look through that. Uh, we're going to chat through it a little bit here, but these are looking at, you know, basically your medical screening process. So, um, you know, the, the first page, what they talk about is if they're appropriate for physical therapy or appropriate for PT and uh, intervention or um, consultation with another healthcare provider, then what you want to look at from there. Obviously, if you don't think they're appropriate for physical therapy, if you think that they are, um, you know, presenting with something that's maybe systemic, maybe it's coming from somewhere else, then, you know, you want to go ahead and make that referral, obviously. So you're looking for red flag things. Um, you'll want to refer them out. But if you, you think that it's, de they're definitely an appropriate candidate for physical therapy, you're not seeing any red flags, uh, then you want to look at the different diagnostic classification criteria. So we've kind of already talked about this with um, what you're going to see in adhesive capsulitis. So we'll kind of reiterate some of this here. So you're rolling it in if your patient's between 40 and 65, they're having that gradual onset of worsening pain and stiffness. Um, it's limiting their sleeping, some of their ADLs, grooming, dressing, reaching. Um, they're going to be limited in all, you know, different um, multiple directions, but especially external rotation, more particularly when their um, arm is at their side. Their um, external and internal rotation range of motion decreases as the arm is abducted from 45 towards 90. Passive motions into the end ranges are reproduce the patient's reported shoulder pain, and their joint glides and accessory motion are going to be restricted in all directions. You would rule out adhesive capsulitis if their passive range of motion is normal. If it says radiographic evidence of glenohumeral arthritis is present, we talked about this a little bit. I, I don't know, you know, it's in here, so it's, it's something to know, but I think you're going to probably have more information provided to you than that, um, just because I think a lot of people have arthritis in their shoulder. Um, passive glenohumeral external internal rotation range of motion increases as the humerus is abducted from 45 toward 90, um, and the reported shoulder pain reproduced with palpatory provocation of the subscapularis myofascia. So that's leading you away from, if that's true, that's leading you away from adhesive capsulitis. Um, upper limb nerve tension testing reproduces the symptoms. Um, and then shoulder pain is reproduced with palpatory provocation of the relevant peripheral nerve entrapment site. So you're looking at, you know, possible nerve involvement or something more significant with some of the rotator cuff tendons that's going to help you roll out adhesive capsulitis. So the other two things that they talk about looking at is, and, you know, we're not going to get too deep into this because we're not necessarily talking about these diagnoses in this episode, but um, they're just looking at, you know, okay, if, if you if you have some of those rule out items, what do you want to look at? So shoulder stability and movement coordination impairments or dislocation of the shoulder or sprain or strain of the shoulder. So you might rule that in if the patient is younger than 40 has a history of shoulder dislocation, has excessive glenohumeral accessory motions in multiple directions, um, and apprehension at end ranges of flexion, horizontal abduction, or external rotation. You would rule that diagnosis out if they had no history of dislocation, um, presence of global glenohumeral motion limitations, and no apprehension with end range shoulder, shoulder active or passive motions. 
And then shoulder pain and muscle power deficits or rotator cuff syndrome is the other diagnostic class classification criteria you might look at, which you might roll in if the symptoms develop from or worsen with repetitive overhead activities or from an acute strain or fall onto the shoulder. Uh, Mid-range, so about 90 degrees, catching sensation, um, positive arc of pain with active elevation, manual resistive tests to the rotator cuff muscles um, reproduce the patient's reported shoulder pain or they have rotator cuff muscle weakness. You would rule this out if the resistive tests are pain-free, um, all the rotator cuff muscles and the biceps have normal strength and there's significant loss of passive motion. So um, just some other things to kind of look at in terms of when you're looking at a patient, they come in um, and they've got a diagnosis of adhesive capsulitis, or you're thinking that might be it. If, if they're hitting some of those rule out criteria, look at these other two options as well. So um, the next thing I want to talk about, I'm going to go into the outcome measures. So we're looking at examination of the patient um, and they talk about a few of these in here. So we're going to just go through this real quick. So the dash, the disabilities of the arm, shoulder, and hand. So that's a 30-question patient self-report questionnaire. Um, I would encourage people, the ones that they talk about, um, the outcome measures, and this is sort of, I guess, a global statement about the clinical practice guidelines. I would definitely try and know, in general, the, um, the MDCs and the MCIDs. Would you agree with that, Amanda? Yeah, I, I, you definitely need to know them. Yes. Yeah. So, so for, for this one, we're looking at the dash first. So the MDC is between 6.6 .6 and 12.2 points. The average is 10 and a half. And your MCID for this is going to be 10.2. So you want to make sure that you know those. Um, the next one is the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeon Shoulder Scale. Uh, the patient self-report scale that has a score of ranges from zero to a hundred, a hundred indicates maximum shoulder use, and it's broken up in 50 maximum points for pain and 50 maximum points for active activities and participation. So you're looking at pain and function in this scale. The MDC is 9.4 and MCID is 6.4. And then for the shoulder pain and disability index, this is a 13 item self-report tool with two domains. So it's got five pain items and eight items of disability. So for this one, the MDC is 18.1 and 18. So I think they looked at two different studies. And then the MCID, they have recorded as eight and 13.1. So I would probably know both of those numbers. Um, there's not a lot of things I would recommend, like trying to really, really memorize tests, but I definitely think knowing those numbers for these most common outcome measures that they talk about in the clinical practice guidelines is a really good idea. Um, all right, so the next thing we're going to look at is uh, the examination portion, looking at activity limitation and physical impairment measures. So I'm not going to talk about this much because it's definitely, it's what we do every day, right? So you're looking at, you want to pick activity limitation measures that um, are going to be easily reproducible and that you can um, that they're relevant to your patient, that you're going to be able to look at them over the plan of care and see if they're changing. Um, so they haven't actually reported any literature other than what's in those questionnaires of specific things. But, you know, obviously for me, I typically ask about 
any sort of reaching activity, sleeping, um, you know, being able to, I, I think a lot of it is I can't wash my hair. So that's a big one that I look at with people, um, being able to reach behind their back. I don't know. Is there anything specific that you typically always look at with these folks? I definitely those couple things, definitely the reach behind the back. Um, yeah, that's one that they complain about a lot. Absolutely. Yeah. And then physical impairment measures, you know, pain, active range of motion. And yet again, we got to look at that passive range of motion. Um, and then your glenohumeral joint accessory motion can help you determine if there's some translational glide loss. So, you know, these are things that you all should be looking at anyway. Um, and so that's important. Um, but there, again, there's not specific like guidelines on this. They just say, make sure you're looking at those things. So, um, real quick, before we get into the interventions, I want to look back at the, um, let's see, it's on page 11 of the clinical practice guideline. So you're looking at the diagnosis of tissue irritability level. So this is something that is really important to know which level of irritability that your patient fits into when it comes to adhesive capsulitis. So um, you've got low, moderate, and high irritability. So if your patient is in that high irritability category, you're going to see reports of high pain levels, so more than, more than or equal to 7 out of 10 consistent night or resting pain, high levels of reported disability on those outcome tools. Um, pain occurs before the end range of active and passive movements. So, you know, you could probably take them a little further, but maybe they're telling you it hurts. Um, and their active range of motion is significantly less than passive due to pain. So you're still going to see passive range of motion limitations in this person. It's just that they're barely going to be moving their arm on their own because it's just too painful. Um, So your moderate irritability patient is going to report pain levels four to six out of 10, um, intermittent night or resting pain, moderate levels of disability on the outcome tools, pain occurs at end ranges of active or passive movements, and your active range of motion is going to be similar to your passive range of motion in this phase. So um, you might still be a little lacking in the passive compared to the, or I'm sorry, the active compared to the passive, but they're going to be a lot closer than in that high irritability phase. And then finally, you're going to have your low irritability. So these are people who are reporting less than or equal to three out of 10 pain, no pain at night or at rest, minimum levels of disability on the outcome tools. Uh, Your pain occurs with overpressures in the end ranges of passive movements, and your active range is going to be the same as your passive range in this category. So The reason why it's important to understand this is because it's definitely going to have an effect on your, um, the interventions that you choose, depending on which level of irritability your patient's in. So if you still looking at that page 11, I would read over these. Um, We're not going to read them on here, but it just tells you which interventions you really should be picking depending on the phase or spending more time doing, I guess. Um, and I would say they're pretty obvious. I mean, for the most part, if they're higher ability, you're going to be leaning more towards education, modalities, um, being really gentle with what you're doing. Whereas if they're low irritability, they're going to be doing a lot more exercise, um, stretching, and not so much with the modalities and, and the, you know, self-care training. 
Yeah, I would say one thing on that too, the patient education is really important for that. You know, educating the patient Mm -hmm. that not only are we going to work within that in therapy, but they need to work within those parameters at home, not only as part of their home Mm -hmm. exercises, but as part of their day-to-day activities. You know, they need to be really mindful of their irritability category. It's going to help them long-term have a more uh, steady recovery as opposed to those kind of up and down phases that are hard to overcome. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, so we're going to talk about the interventions they cover now, and we're going to talk about these in the order of strongest evidence to, you know, a weaker evidence. It's not necessarily the order that they have it in, but, um, I think it's important. This is just how we both talked about how we studied. So we thought it'd be a little easier to go through it this way. So, um, the only intervention that they discuss that has strong evidence are corticosteroid injections, and they need to be intraarticular corticosteroid injections. Um, so those combined with shoulder mobility and stretching exercises are more effective in providing short-term pain relief and improved function. So about four to six weeks of pain relief and improved function compared to just doing shoulder mobility and stretching exercises alone. Um, I mean, any comments on the injections? No, I just, you know, I said to Alexis, I said, I think one time where I think that this is really helpful is if you're getting a lot of referrals from primary care physicians for shoulder pain and they maybe haven't been diagnosed or they haven't seen orthopedics and you're pretty confident that they're having an adhesive cap, I would, uh, that's an aval and treat situation to me. Um, you know, really making sure that you get them over to ortho because they're going to do much better. And I explained it to patients, a, a, a cortisone injection doesn't take away the need for therapy. It helps make things a little bit more tolerable so you can get maximum benefit. So yeah. I think explaining yeah, to patients how the two work together, how you, how the cortisone injection is going to help with therapy and how therapy is going to help maximize the benefit of the cortisone injection. You're going to get better patient buy-in. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. So I think, you know, in terms of preparing for the OCS, just understanding that it's, it's a really good option for these patients to have these intraarticular injections combined with their therapy. Um, So the next intervention we're going to talk about is patient education. Um, Obviously, I'm sure this is something we're all doing with our patients. So in this case, um, there's moderate evidence to show that um, patient education should include, and we talked about this a little bit already, the natural course of the disease. So discussing those, those different stages with the patient and what to expect of how long it might take, the symptoms they might experience, um, and you know, promotion of activity modification to encourage functional pain-free range of motion and matching the intensity of stretching to the patient's current level of irritability. So you know, also explaining to them those levels of irritability, like, look, right now you're in this high irritability level and um, this is what we're expecting. So this is how we're going to focus our treatment. As things move forward and you're progressing, then this will be the next phase. And then, you know, finally getting into that low irritability. So people tend to do better if if they understand what's going on. And so um, in terms of this practice guideline, there's, they're saying moderate evidence, um, from their research has been shown, um, with this patient education. So anything, I know we kind of touched on this a little bit, Amanda, but anything else to add on patient education? No, I don't think so. I think these okay. patients in addition to education, just know they're going to need a lot of encouragement. And with that, put the mm-hmm. education, you're going to have to reemphasize the natural course of the disease progression because they don't, you know, 
15 months is a lot to wrap your head around and they need to hear it over and over. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, and, and just letting them know, you know, there is that light at the end of the tunnel and, and they just need to be, be consistent with their home exercises and, and attending therapy and doing, you know, whatever they need to be doing to get better. So, um, the next intervention, also moderate evidence is stretching exercises. So clinicians should instruct patients with adhesive capsulitis in stretching exercises. And the intensity, again, should be determined by the patient's tissue irritability level. Um, the next section is modalities. Um, and it, I think you guys will see in most of these, when it comes to modalities, it's pretty weak evidence. Um, so what they've seen is that shortwave diathermy, ultrasound, or e-stem combined with mobility and stretching exercises to reduce pain and improve shoulder range of motion in patients with adhesive capsulitis. Um, so you can use these things in combination. Um, it's difficult to determine the impact of a singular modality, um, because typically that's not what you're doing. You're always going to be doing some manual or some therax with these people, um, so you can't say that, oh, all I need to do is ultrasound on this shoulder and it's going to progress just the same, um, that that information isn't out there. So again, weak evidence on the mo use of modalities, but it's going to be more for pain management in this situation. Um, the next one is joint mobilization. So using glenohumeral joint mobilizations to reduce pain and increase motion and function. And this also has weak evidence. So we talked a little bit about this beforehand. I mean, I know you said you used to do it a lot more than you do now using the joint mode. Yeah, I think that it's a way that it's hard to judge in the moment how a patient's going to respond to them. And I think I've learned over mm -hmm. time with some experience that they do a lot better when they have control of stretching exercises. And I've seen a lot of my patients progress just as well compared to when I used to do a lot more manual, I think sometimes it's easy to get a little aggressive with manual. You know, we have in our head, like the joint's got to move, the joint's got to move. But in the, in the moment when you're doing all of that, I think it's hard for a patient to sense how irritable they may or may not be and relay that information mm -hmm. correctly to you so you can adapt. And I think it's really easy to get a little overboard with the manual joint mobilizations. I'd say now what I generally do before I start, have them do stretching exercises as I'll do a little bit of grade one, grade two distraction with like some small mid range oscillations, but I don't typically do aggressive mobilizations anymore to gain range of motion. Yeah. Yep. I, I found agree. that it, what happens is they tend to get really tight then in guard and then they don't get as much out mm -hmm. of their stretching exercises, which literature tells us are actually better. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Okay, so then the last one that they talk about is translational manipulation. So manipulation under anesthesia, which um, can be used if patients aren't responding to conservative intervention. And again, this has weak evidence. So um, I don't know. I mean, I've seen a few patients that have had manipulations when they've had adhesive capsulitis, but definitely not as commonly as I've seen patients that have had the injections or, you know, just therapy. Yeah, I'd, I'd say it's a last resort. I and primarily because they have to, it essentially kind of restarts the process almost in terms of how they mm -hmm. feel and how guarded they come in. And a lot of patients don't want to do that. And a lot of, like, I feel like a lot of orthopedics that I've worked with try to steer away from it because it's a natural course. Most people, it's going to resolve with time. It's waiting that out. The right. times I have seen manipulation, it's closer to that 20, 24 months, or they have some other comorbidity. Like if they have a rotator cuff tear too, I've seen a couple cases where they manip it to get the shoulder moving better to prep them for a rotator cuff repair. 
something yeah. of that nature. There's yeah. usually some extraneous factor in those cases. Yeah, I agree. Um, so, I mean, that pretty much covers, again, this is a very, like, brief version of this, but it covers the main points that they talk about in the practice guidelines. I think we wanted to chat a little bit further just to kind of help reiterate some things or, um, you know, help with just the general discussion and understanding of adhesive capsulitis. So clinically, um, I know this is something that I've seen misdiagnosed quite a bit. Uh, Amanda, what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I would agree. I think it's sometimes just because it's a diagnosis of, diagnosis of exclusion, um, a mm-hmm. lot of doctors don't go through the full exclusion process or patients have self-diagnosed it based on talking to somebody, but there's not a hard and fast way to diagnose this necessarily. So yes, I would agree. It's often misdiagnosed. Yeah. I've seen a lot of patients who come in and, and they do have really limited active range of motion. Um, like, yeah, I, I don't know. Like, I think it's frozen shoulder. I can barely move my arm, but then passively they're completely fine. They're not having pain with passive motion or they are, but they've got way more passive motion than active motion. And I'm like, okay, that's, I don't think this is the track that we're on at all. Um, so that's definitely something I've run into quite a few times. Um, and then I guess just like general patient thoughts or misconceptions about adhesive capsulitis. I mean, I think for me, a lot of it is like when I, when I see, it's funny when I see people and it's their, the second time they've had it when they've had that sort of bilateral issue and, you know, five years ago, they had it in the other arm. They're a lot more accepting of the process because they know they've already been there. Right. So they're like, I know I just have to sort of deal with this for X amount of months. And then I'm going to be where I'm at with this shoulder. So it's fine. Um, but the people who come in and they're, it's the first time they've experienced it. You know, we all struggle with all of our patients Googling things on the internet and finding stories. And well, this person said theirs resolved like this and blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, there's obviously, we're always combating that. So I don't know what other types of thoughts or misconceptions you typically run into. Um, I think the biggest thing I run into with patients with this is exactly what you just said, Alexis, is they get online, you know, they'll come in for their eval. We'll start a home program. We, I give them the whole spiel about the course and what they should expect and all of that. And then they go home and Google it and they want it, you know, they're frustrated by the timeline, I think more than anything else. And they try to find all these quick fixes. And so they put all these other things in the mix and they'll come back to see me a few days, week later or something like that. And getting and getting them to stay the course of care is the hardest part. And that's why you can't, I don't think you can undereducate these patients. And I think frequency of education with these patients really matters. Like I said before, they need to hear it over and over again, A, because they just need to be mm-hmm. reminded, you know, sometimes they just... They need the motivation to keep working on getting it better, but also to remind them like, this is why we're doing what we're doing. And this is why we've changed what we're doing based on whatever phase so that they really do buy into what you're having them do. And they're not tossing in a bunch of other stuff that they read online that may be too aggressive, that may not be helpful, you know, and contributing to their progress or lack of progress. Right. Yeah. I totally agree. I totally agree. So, um, like I said in the beginning, you know, this is definitely not supposed to um, take the place of you reading these and really knowing them. I know for me, I sort of wrote everything out, especially the levels of evidence and, you know, those, um, the information on the different outcome measures, like you definitely want to know all that. Um, It can feel a little overwhelming, but you probably know more of this. I'm sure everything that we said 
you've probably heard at some point before. Um, so it's just making sure that you really understand the, the value of the different evidence and, um, you know, the different outcome measures and really understanding how to rule these patients in or out for this diagnosis. Agreed. I don't think I really have anything else to add right now. Yeah, great. Um, all right. Well, if you guys have any questions, so we did create the Gmail account. Amanda, do you remember what that address is? It'll be in the comments. I have to pull it up. I don't have it right in front of me, but it can be in the comments. Okay. All right. We'll put it in the comments section. Um, I think it's certified OCS podcast at gmail.com. It is. That sounds right. <laughs> okay. All right. So if you have questions or comments, um, feel free to shoot us an email there and we will get back to you. Um, if there's any specific questions, we can definitely talk about those in a future episode. Um, but otherwise, we will catch everybody next time.